We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Welcome to today's Kilkenny Today. Morris O'Connor with you here, of course, as usual on the Tuesday. And delighted to be back with you again. Uh, do stay with us. We hope you will for the rest of the hour. And anyway, through on into the evening here on Community Radio, Kilkenny City. 88.7 FM, first station on the FM dial. And of course, on the internet, crkc.ie. Now, if you want to text us anything during the show, the number, of course, is 086-353-7782. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to Jenny Fahey, who's uh, living over in Tipperary, actually in the Clock Jordan Eco Village, for any of you who know that. And Jenny is the chief executive officer of an organization, a charity she founded herself called Life Connections. So we'll be chatting to Jenny uh, towards the end of the show, maybe around about quarter to six. Well, I shouldn't have said that because it's going to be repeated into the show. Um, we'll be hearing from Jenny Fahey. Um, we'll also be hearing from Catherine Mannion, who's a senior pharmacist with the HSE uh, CHO5, that's the Southeast region. And um, that coincides very nicely with a piece of uh, reportage that was in the Irish Times today, um, reporting and noting on the fact that there, uh, throughout 2020 so far, there's been a significant drop in the amount of antibiotics uh, prescribed, um, largely, I suspect, due to uh, maybe people not visiting their GPs as much because of the pandemic. Um, but there is that article in the Irish Times. But last Wednesday, as it happened, the 18th, was uh, the European Antimicrobial Awareness Day. And I had uh, a chat with Catherine Mannion back close to that time um, about that day and about the, the use of antibiotics in particular. So we'll be bringing you that in the middle of the show. We don't have any parish news today, of course, um, as usual, but we will be bringing you back um, some of that. Um, we might have some sight of what might be possible by way of parish news um, by this time next week when the government um, announce how they're planning to lift uh, level five restrictions. So um, a little bit after that, as it was during early into December, we'll probably have more of an idea about whether or not we can bring you any parish news, but we will as soon as we possibly can. Now to kick us off on today's show, I'm joined by uh, one of a, a great band of people, uh, very, very wise people, Dubliners who move out of Dublin for a, a better life. Um, in this case, uh, my first guest, Jerry Boland, um, didn't come down here to Kilkenny, but he moved uh, to County Roscommon uh, down uh, a number of years ago. He's a Dubliner by birth and education, um, but uh, Jerry gave up eating animals in 1985, became a vegan 10 years later, and founded a campaigning group called Animals Behind Closed Doors. So good afternoon, Jerry. Lovely to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on, Morris. And uh, you're, you're happy down there in Roscommon, just as happy as I am, having moved out of the big smoke all those years um, ago. I am. Um, I'd much prefer to be in Roscommon on a day like this than um, trekking the streets of Dublin, I have to say. Uh, it's a pretty wet day down there. No, no, it's, it was a wonderful thing to do. And um, yeah, so um, that's where I am, North Roscommon. Likewise. The border of Sligo, Roscommon, and Leacombe. Right, well, well, we'll leave aside the, the geography and the, the joys of moving out of Dublin for the moment, Jerry, for another conversation on another day, maybe. Um, just some news recently has highlighted something that yourself and the uh, Animals Behind Closed Doors uh, campaign is particularly interested in. There's there's um, a focus um, on three mink farms in Ireland whose existence was really highlighted by 
a variant of the SARS-CoV-2 um, virus, which coronavirus, um, which was identified in mink and Denmark. And there's discussion, as you know, going on about whether or not um, those farms uh, should have all their mink culled and um, be shut down. So you're, you're, you've been highlighting this issue or trying to highlight the issue of um, animal fur farming for quite a while, I believe. Owl for a long time, Morris, to be honest with you. I'm not the only person in Ireland who's been doing that. There's been ongoing campaigns to end farm farming in the country. And the good news is that even in the last government, um, Minister Creed um, had planned to introduce legislation banning fur farming, but that never happened. Um, and it's in the current programme for government, so it is going to happen. Um, but we're calling for it to be moved up the agenda and to become something urgent because... Um, you know, because of what's happening with COVID, um, it's yet another reason and an unwelcome reason, I suppose, to close them down. Um, I've, I haven't, my campaigns in the past on fur farming haven't been um, virus related. I have to say they've been animal rights related because I've always mm -hmm. believed that animals, uh, certainly wild animals like that, should not be kept um, in the conditions that they're kept in in, in these cages. Um, whatever we're keeping, you know, the campaign, the, the Animals Behind Closed Doors campaign is a campaign um, to phase out factory farming generally for, you know, pigs, chickens, mm. etc. Mm. Um, but at least we eat those, um, but we don't eat mink. Like, so, you know, to, no. to keep wild animals like that that are solitary, that go completely bonkers um, mm. when they're kept in those conditions, mm. um, it's horrendous and there's no, there's no ethical excuse for it at all. So the mm. sooner it's closed down, the better. And Jerry, the um, you know the am I am I right? There's just a three mink farm in Ireland right at the moment. So it's it's obviously for whoever's involved in those it, that's their livelihood and their income, and they should presumably have to be replaced. So they have to be, get some compensation if to to be shut down. So it's probably not a huge business uh, venture in in terms of the overall size of the Irish economy. But where, do, do you know where the where does the fur from those mink go for making garments? Is is it processed in Ireland or is it sent abroad or do you know? What happens? Um, I would imagine it's not processed in Ireland. Um, I do know that that some of it is used for eyelashes, of all things. I only learned that recently. Really? Um, yeah, for false eyelashes. Okay. So the thing is, when you're going into cosmetic shops or when you're going into any clothes shops, you really don't know unless it's on the label and it's not always on the label. A lot of because of the publicity, like the very bad publicity that fur got, like you know, in, in the last couple of decades, it didn't so much disappear, but it became. Um, like big fur coats became an item that celebrities just simply didn't want to wear, even if they mm. even if they would have liked to have worn them. Mm. And so, kind of the, the industry um, kind of changed to a, to a certain extent, and it's still the fur was still used, but it was used more in things like gloves and um, little trinkets, etc. So, you know, it it, it it adapted to accommodate a changed um, consumer demand. But there yeah. still are a lot of people in the world who would like to have a fur coat and. Yeah. So that's where the mink goes. So I, but I, I don't know where the process, to be honest with you. But I imagine yeah. it's not in Ireland. Now I know, um, you, know you know, I know that your own website, animalsbehindcloseddoors.com, um, kind of highlights treatment of uh, the mink can experience, particularly when they're being um, killed for their fur um, in those um, mink farms. Um, but they probably don't have a great kind of reputation generally, anyway, because they do. They do and they have since they were introduced to Ireland, escaped into the wild. They move along water courses. They can attack um, poultry flocks in an extremely destructive way, as I, and I know from kind of friends of ours down here in um, rural County Kilkenny. 
Um, like uh, in in addition to if you were to be successful with getting the fur farming banned, would you also favour something like a mink trapping or elimination program here in, across the country? Oh no, I definitely would not. Um, like these are the wild animals. Like and it's it's we who have disturbed nature, and we've you know we've created an extremely complex ecosystem now, which is not based on the way that the natural world should operate. So we've introduced a lot of species and. There are a lot of mink and the wild animals, and you know we put terms on them as vicious, like you know. So we, we call them, you know, we call we, we we give terms to animals that we don't really like, like rats, etc. We call them vermin. Um, but they're you know they're animals. They live their lives and um, they're wild and they they kill to to survive. And so no, I, I, I the relatively recent introductions and not at all indigenous. And as I say, they do have that. I think if you spoke to many um, people, even with a few hens out the backyard, which a lot of people in rural Ireland would have near a stream, well, they can experience um, absolutely. I understand that, absolutely. Yeah. I, absolutely. Um, um, I, I, I do understand that, but I, I don't actually believe that we should be going around um, killing them at the same time, just so we, just because we've messed up um, the balance of nature. And nature does have an uncanny habit of rebalancing itself. It's, mm. Unfortunately, it's, it's the human interference which has created such an imbalance. Um, but I don't think just because we've created an imbalance, I don't think it gives us the right to start eliminating, as you know, I did hear um, a rural TD calling last week for the complete eradication of wild mink around the country. Like, I think that's a great thing to say. So, so anyway, the, the current campaign is asking government to deliver, as you mentioned, on the programme for government promise to, to ban fur farming. Um, what's, what sort of sense of optimism do you have around that? Oh, well, I think it's definitely going to happen. Um, because of what's going on in government and the economy, etc., at the moment, it's very hard to know when it's going to happen. Um, we've been putting pressure, um, and other organisations have been putting pressure on the government to move it right up the agenda. As you know, there's the there's the possible call of the Danish mink. I, there has been a big yeah. controversy over that, and well, there's been resignations of agricultural ministers and everything. But that's a huge industry there, so you can understand how there's been a huge pushback. And there won't be a pushback here. Obviously, the, the, the three mink farms themselves, you know, they, they are um, providing a livelihood for very few people, but they are providing a livelihood. Um, but, you know, these people will be compensated. And um, the sooner it happens, the better. Like, to be honest with you, if, if it's not legislated out of existence by, tw- by the end of 2021, I think it'll, it's a bit of a disgrace, to be honest with you. It's not going to be a difficult thing to be done. Putting together the legislation is going to be a simple enough bill um, it'll get widespread um, acceptance, I think, right across the um, political spectrum. So there's no reason not to do it. It could be done like in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. to be honest. I with think you. with a lot of these things, Jerry, my, my sense would be, it's just like, you know, if, if you do want to achieve something, and particularly where, you, as you said, there may not be any significant pushback on it, um, the easiest thing to do with the body politic is to make it really easy for them up, up until and including even kind of handing them draft legislation to, to propose to, to go that far. Or you just literally hand it over to them and say, look, you're the, yeah, you're well, the legislation drafting experts, just do it, please. Um, it's a very good idea. It's a good suggestion. Um, it wouldn't be my expertise, but I do know people who might have that expertise. So you've given me an idea, Morris, actually, that I might actually approach, approach a TD and um, maybe a Green Party TD as they're in government and see if they might actually draft the legislation. It may well be, actually, that Minister Creed in the previous government had begun to draft um, some legislation already, but I will chase that up actually tomorrow. Mm. 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 Good, just just mentioning um, successive governments, I mean, I kind of I, I hadn't heard, <coughs> I suppose, about this till the 
excuse me, the issue blew up over the the uh, the Danish mink farm and then the the, uh, the Irish mink farms. Their presence was made obvious to us all. Um, has you, you you know has has there been an intention expressed that this kind of ban would be put in place even from previous governments? I would have kind of naturally assumed that it would have come from um, you know the Green Party sector of the current government. Well, there's been campaigning going on for a long time right across the political spectrum against fur farming, and I suppose you could call it you know that term low hanging fruit. Yes, um, it's one of those issues, those animal rights issues, which is easier to persuade politicians to do something about than it is, for instance, you know, something else, um, which would have, might have wider economic and social implications. So there has been broad support for the banning of fur farming. There's also, I have to say, been a lot of consistent campaigning and quite effective campaigning by different organisations over the years. And the Labour Party, when they had a lot of TDs, they were very much in favour of a ban. Um, so, and there are, so yeah, I, I think... It didn't happen quickly. It took a long time. These things do take decades, usually, to come through. Um, mm. But just in the last few... I was surprised myself, to be quite honest with you. I wasn't expecting a, um, a Fine Gael minister to uh, agree to introduce that. But there you go. It just shows how unpopular um, fur farming is. Yeah, I presume it would be uh, Charlie McConnellog now, being Fianna Fáil exactly. Minister for Agriculture, that would have responsibility for bringing that um, legislation yeah, well, it was the Green Party that um, that pushed for it. Although, as I said, it was in the it was in the previous government. But the Green Party, in my understanding, is that in negotiations for government, the Green Party pushed quite hard to make sure that that stayed in. Yeah, yeah. And in in terms of maybe giving the the push to to politicians that you would like to see, like what would you your ask be to to members of the public on the fur farming issue? Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, members of the public to contact the local TDs. Obviously, the best way of getting things done is to, well, first of all, you know, create um, consumer demand for something or consumer demand to end something. And secondly, to lobby your local politicians. People think that that's probably not worthwhile. But actually, when people do lobby their local politician, the local politician does take notice. And it does. So the more people that can do that, and the more um, the more word that filters through to Charlie McConaughey's office, um, the quicker it'll be done. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And just uh, before we we finish, then I know your, your um, animals behind closed doors isn't a, a single issue um, campaigning uh, activity and, and website. Uh, Jerry goes us having a look at the website earlier on. Um, like the banning of fur farming, I suppose, is something that could appeal to. Um, you know, people who are carnivorous or vegetarian or pescatarian or flexitarian or whatever the term is, or even vegans. Um, but your your campaign also wants, um, in your own words, to, as you described, bring factory farming into the open. Um, can you tell us just briefly what you would like to see happen, say, in the, the pig, the poultry, the dairy or the fish farming sectors? Yeah, because, Morris, to be honest, which I wasn't expecting, we only launched the website just recently. I wasn't expecting to be speaking about fur farming at all. Um, our campaign is mainly um, focused on pigs and poultry um, because the vast majority of pigs and chickens produced in Ireland you know, are, are, are raised um, in windowless sheds. They never see the light of day. Um, it's a completely unacceptable um, way of farming. And so the main focus of our campaign is to bring about a public awareness of where people's um, sausages and rashers come from, where their chicken comes from, um, it's a hidden industry. It is a secretive industry, and there's a reason for that. And that the, the industry knows that um, if it was widely understood how these animals are treated and how their food ends up on the table, 
and people wouldn't support it. I genuinely believe that. That's how I became vegetarian and vegan myself, by mm. seeing stuff that I would rather have not seen. But, um, so that's I mean, I, yeah, I have to, I have to, I have to admit that sometimes I, I often wonder with most of us who, who do eat meat, and I quite openly admit I, I still enjoy eating meat. Um, if if it came to push came to the shove, and I could only eat meat if I was prepared to kill the the creature involved, um, I do wonder to myself uh, what my attitude would be. Yeah. Um, but well, I suppose uh, that's I, the I, animal I, rights argument. But my yeah. argument on the reason I set up um, animals behind closed doors is because I firmly believe that. Like, we are asking animals to give us their lives. That's essentially what we're doing. We're bringing them into the world specifically so we can kill them and eat them. So mm. how can we ask them to compromise, like, their natural behaviours as we do with pigs and chickens? You know, mm. like, these animals that are more intelligent than your dog, not that intelligence has anything to do with it, but they're sentient, feeling creatures. So at the very least, if we're going to be eating them, we must give them a proper life, a decent life. And so yeah, that's what yeah. the campaign that, is about. Just, really. just one last question for you then, just in relation to that, and we just close on this one. Um, uh, Jerry, and it's lovely to be, to be talking to you this, uh, this afternoon. Um, how, how do you think the organic um, farming sector then does in, in, in that regard? Well, like, it's pathetically on um, lack of support. It's, it's like Ireland, like a lot of things, Ireland is, 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 is in a magnificent position to become a leader in organic production. You know, an island... Um, that has this reputation of wildness and cleanliness in the, um, in the Atlantic, we could become absolute leaders in organic production. Mm. And the amount of um, the amount of support that a successive governments have given to the organic industry is absolutely pathetic. Like I'm hoping that's going to change with the Greens mm. and government. If it well, doesn't wait, change that's now, uh, probably a conversation that we can explore in a number of different quarters uh, on on another day. But in the meantime, it's it's been great talking to you, Jerry. Thanks a million for joining us from all the way down there in Roscommon, and uh, do enjoy, continue to enjoy the the life outside of Dublin as as I do myself. Thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for having thanks for having me on, Morris. I enjoyed that. You're, Thank you. Bye you're bye. very welcome. Thanks, Jerry. That was uh, Jerry Boland, uh, an animal rights activist, Dubliner, now living in Roscommon, and his website is animalsbehindcloseddoors.com if you want to find out more. By the time we took a first ad break of the day here on uh, today's Kilkenny Today, we'll be back in a couple of minutes' time after these. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. KB's Rhythm and Roots. Please note the time change for one week only. This Saturday it's 8 to 10. So let the music keep our spirits high and keep on rocking. Let the music keep our spirits high. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Welcome back to today's Kilkenny Today. Lovely to hear a bit of KB there um, exhorting us all to uh, let the music keep our spirits high and hopefully it does. And uh, she certainly does, I know, I know, on our own shows here in Community Radio, Kilkenny City. So I hope you're keeping well and out of the way of COVID anyway, Kate, if you're listening in to the show today. Now, uh, moving on, I mentioned at the top of the hour that um, last Wednesday, the 18th, was European Antimicrobial Awareness Day. Antimicrobial really meaning antibiotics. And around the time I spoke to Catherine Mannion, who's a senior antimicrobial pharmacist in the southeast region here in around the uh, CHO5, it's called. Anyway, I recorded a chat with her there uh, last week, just around that uh, day and around issues around uh, the use or maybe abuse or overuse of antibiotics. So let's have a listen. I know you're Kilkenny woman, Richard. You're not based here in the city at the moment. 
down in Wexford, I believe, for sale. You're welcome all the same. Thank you very much, Morris. Wednesday the 18th was uh, a day called European Antimicrobial Awareness Day, Catherine. A um, bit of a mouthful, but just to concentrate on the antimicrobial bit at the moment, um, am I right in thinking what we're really talking about here is antibiotics as in, in common parlance? Yes, so we're really, it's all about, um, this day is all about raising awareness about the the issue of rising antibiotic resistance. So antibiotics were discovered over 100 years ago and Alexander Fleming discovered, first discovered penicillin and it revolutionized medicine and how we're able to to live for longer, what the surgeries that we can have, the infections that we can fight. But he actually wrote the first antimicrobial stewardship guideline or antibiotic stewardship guideline. He said from day one, if we don't use these when needed at the correct dose for the shortest length of time, they will become, the bacteria are so clever when they're exposed to antibiotics, they develop resistance mechanisms. And we do have a big issue globally. Our antibiotics aren't as effective as they used to be you know, let's say 20 years ago, because we're using more antibiotics, the bacteria modify themselves, they're very clever, and then you get these multi-drug resistant organisms or multi-drug resistant bacteria known as superbugs. So really this day is all about promoting that we need to use antibiotics really carefully. They still do, you know, they still are, they still are a key in in promoting our longevity of life and being able for us to be able to have surgical procedures. But it's all about that we need to combat antimicrobial resistance. Oh, well, so let's just kind of move through all of that and kind of step by step a little bit. Um, the, I think we would probably all be able to uh, remember the names of kind of popular ones. There's plenty of popular ones that people will just know the names of, aren't there? There's general classes of antibiotics or groups of antibiotics. So you'd have penicillins, you'd have cephalosporins, you'd have quinolones. They're all quite mouthfuls. And then within your penicillins, amoxicillin is one, penicillin B, V is one known as calvapen. Egmentin is sort of a, it's, it, it is a, it, it's a, it's a more potent, it's a stronger version of penicillin. It has, has another added activity onto it. Um, so macrolides, erythromycin is another really older antibiotic that people might know. Um, and often people know them by their brand names. Um, and this issue with resistance that I, that I you know, referred to in the first question, when, when antibiotics were first discovered, resistance was, they, they were aware there was resistance, but the, there wasn't a big problem because there was always another antimicrobial in the pipeline. But the issue is now, it costs so much to develop drugs. You know, I suppose drug companies, they'll gain an awful lot more by developing a new cardiovascular drug or a new anti-diabetic drug. There isn't a market for them because if they develop a new antibiotic, we don't want it used widely because often it, it treats these multi-drug resistant organisms. And so in, in, in doctors' in surgeries, I suppose a lot of us who are, who are kind of maybe overpowered a little bit by the medical profession, we don't feel um, competent or qualified to even question the prescribing of antibiotics to us. So how does this pattern of what seems to be a, an awareness of or a picture of overuse maybe come into play? Or is it overuse or just bacteria or just that clever or both? Well, no, we would we would say that because Ireland has um, 
so in in every in in the in most countries the majority of antibiotics are going to be it's in the community because um there's less ill patients in acute hospitals and our consumption in ireland is much higher than sweden it's um ireland is in the top third of the highest antimicrobial prescribing rates in europe and 80 percent of antibiotics are prescribed in the community setting wow. now i would say that this is probably maybe a cultural uh phenomenon really and that it's all about it's educating the public it's educating gps it's educating um all healthcare professionals because it's not just um it's not just one person that's involved with us we all need to be on board and i think a key message for the general public is that antimicrobials do not work against viral illnesses yeah i think so, there's an important point that's going to come on to yeah. particularly at the, at the moment um and some of the months and months we've been trying to get get a work our way around and through the COVID pandemic and that's a virus and of course the antibiotics are useless yeah um so often i think there can be cases where you know lives are busy our lives are busy we've you know we don't feel well we've taken time off work we've made an appointment to go and see our gp and then when we go to see the gp we feel if we don't get an antibiotic because often i think the general conception is an antibiotic is going to get, make me get better faster but a lot of viral illnesses so you're um do take up to maybe 10 to 14 days to completely clear um, so really, like your common, your colds, your flu, it's all about over-the-counter remedies, you know, taking painkillers, taking something maybe, if you've got a cough, maybe take a cough bottle, get your rest and um, give your body time to recover. But taking an antibiotic where it's not indicated is, again, going to drive up resistance. You could have an adverse effect from the antibiotic. It could give you diarrhea, an upset stomach. Um, sometimes you know you can get a rash, um, vomiting or nausea. Um, also, you're paying for something that you don't even need. You know, mm. um, so it's all about just getting into the mindset. And there's a really excellent website, www.undertheweather.ie. And for again, you know, all these viral things, often earaches, often sore throats, they're often viral. You can get a superimposed bacterial infection, let's say, for a bad sore throat which is called a strep throat and in that case you would need an antibiotic but the vast majority you don't need an antibiotic and so it's not there, going to help you get so is there, has there kind of a passion then been built up the suggestion is that maybe as a as a people where we, we latch on to antibiotics too much we're over overly demanding of them and maybe as a profession or in some cases some doctors are overly inclined to prescribe them too too easily because like the doctors have the ultimate control on this don't they they're all they're all prescription every antibiotic isn't that the case yeah they are all prescription now you would say and again we would say only take your antibiotics when they're prescribed by your gp take them as prescribed complete your course take them at the correct intervals you know don't share antibiotics with anyone else you know don't buy them abroad don't stockpile them and take them then you know it's important that we do use them carefully but there is i you know there can be pressure on gps that to 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 prescribe but i do think so that's why i think everyone has to be on board that if you go to your gp and you think i really need an antibiotic and you aren't prescribed one 
that's not a bad outcome. That's a good outcome because mm. you're not getting something that, you know, you don't need. You're not paying for something that you don't need and possibly suffering adverse effects and yeah. you are going to get better. Um, and also like your community pharmacist, again, if you go in, they'll be able to give you advice on what you can take over the counter. And I would say like very young children, very elderly patients or people who maybe are immunosuppressed, there you might err on the side of caution. But um, really, I suppose the key message, viral illnesses, antimicrobials aren't going to work. Um, and there is also, um, there's community, um, there's antimicrobial prescribing guidelines, it's www.antibioticprescribing.ie. So these are an excellent resource for GPs, um, um, for anyone who works in healthcare in the community, they're also going to cover the acute settings as well. But yeah. th this resource, it's updated regularly and um, it, it recommends the correct antibiotic, the correct duration and the correct dose. And I would say that there has been a trend that GPs are are changing the way they prescribe antibiotics in a, in a really positive way. And just back to one thing you said a couple of minutes ago, um, Catherine, about the, the, you know, the, the, the temptation maybe to buy them abroad because they might be cheaper. Now that we can't do that as much anymore, but yeah, we all know people have gone on holidays and stocked up in other countries on drugs for, that are a lot more expensive here. Um, but typically, like, uh, and doctors here, I think, are good at prescribing um, only a certain amount that to keep you kind of get you through a week or ten days or whatever. But um, if there are leftover um, antibiotics that people have at home, do they have a kind of a? Although they shouldn't be taking them anyway, unless the doctor says so. Do they still have a shelf life that you should really just throw throw them out after you know your you your prescribed period by the doctor? Like what I would say is if you had a course of antibiotics prescribed by, by the GP, you should have, you should take them and finish it out. And even if you begin to feel better after a couple of days, you finish the full course of the antibiotic. Because again, if you don't complete a course of an antibiotic, the bacteria could be partially exposed and develop the resistance. If you do, for some reason, have some left over, you won't have enough to give a full course of treatment for another um, illness. Yeah. So really, it's again, it's the same sort of an issue. You're not really taking a proper course, and um, and it isn't safe having medicines lying around. You know, yeah, I don't with you young know, children yeah. around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's often nice and colourful, and uh, yeah, look like sweeties. <laughs> yeah. When yeah, they're far from it. Yeah, and um, the side yeah. effects thing as well is something that maybe it's worth worth highlighting. And you, you did mention kind of things like you know upset stomachs and diarrheas and all of that, and you know they're not something that people would want to impose on themselves unless they really had to. Um, but the flip side of that is you hear quite a lot of talk about at the moment about um, probiotics that you should oh, be getting yeah. if you are on courses of antibiotics. So like, are, are probiotics pharmaceutical or are they just found in, are they kind of the typical over-the-counter type supplementy kind of things or what, what are they really? Or are they just so, good foodstuffs? So the jury is still out on whether there's enough scientific evidence to completely advocate your probiotics and where pro the whole idea behind the probiotics is that when you are exposed to an antibiotic it is killing the bad bacteria but also your good bacteria we've got bacteria all over our skin we've bacteria all over you know within us um, and they all live it's a symbiotic relationship so when you take an antibiotic a good example is some people when they get an antibiotic they develop oral thrush because the natural bacterial flora is, 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 is altered. So the idea behind the probiotics is it keeps your, the bacterial flora healthy and you get less likely to get these side effects from your antibiotics. The jury is still out on it. And there are, you can get some pharmaceutical based 
probiotics. Also, Actimel is one that you would have seen advertised. Yeah. Um, now, what I would say is when they first came out, I actually think they were maybe not very strong. I, d- I think maybe they, were, they felt, I think they've worked on them a lot to make them maybe more effective. But um, a general healthy person who takes the course of an antibiotic, hopefully not taking very many antibiotics, if you don't suffer the side effects, I think you're probably absolutely fine. Again, if you're in those risk categories, sometimes in young children or the elderly, um, and also natural yogurt, full of those natural yogurt. I was just going to say, yeah, good natural yogurt, yeah. Yeah, so, so, um, and that's a good thing to have anyway. And I'm sure you've probably heard chat about it, that they are feeling, you know, there is a school of thought that they're investigating that our gut bacteria are key to our health Mm. and keeping a healthy weight and keeping our immune system working and so um link to our brains and all of this this phrase gut feeling (laughs) actually has some reality to it yeah yeah it's it's been great talking to you hopefully um catherine on european antimicrobial awareness days uh, we have done a little bit of awareness raising and introduced a little bit of yeah just questioning into people's minds about uh, the next time they feel they need an antibiotic do they really and uh, just be careful about what it is they they use um, when they do get uh, a required um, prescription and uh, hopefully you'd probably be looking forward to expecting to see the figures for um, uh, antibiotic use in Ireland um, decrease and come more into line with other European countries or best practice we might be seeing that. A hundred percent and definitely there is there there are improvements that have happened and I think COVID-19 has seen a dramatic drop in our antimicrobial consumption because there is no spreading of viruses. People are staying in. I think maybe phone consultations are maybe easier not for GPs to feel they need to give an antibiotic when necessary. Um, But it is all about every, it's at an individual level. We all need to take ownership for this because we need to keep our our antibiotics effective for, for, for many years to come. Great. Email us on studio at communityradiokilkennycity.ie. There you go. That was Catherine Mannion, uh, Senior Antimicrobial Pharmacist with the HSE. And as uh, she was saying, there has been that big drop in the use and uh, prescription and prescription of antibiotics since the start of the pandemic. I suppose the real question is uh, how or will it bounce back and to what extent and will we see a, an overall reduction and maybe more? occasionally kind of healthy uh, amount of or appropriate amount of prescribing and use of antibiotics. Anyway, I just want to mention before we go to the ad break, we did have a text uh, while I was chatting there to Jerry Boland from Animals Behind Closed Doors. A texter was um, uh, wondering how the, um, did I know how, or did Jerry know how the mink are slaughtered and at what age? and where they originate from. Uh, I've just been, while I was listening to Catherine there, I just had a look at the Animals Behind Closed Doors website. And uh, yeah, there's a, a very uh, raw and uh, uh, yeah, descriptive uh, illustration, or not illustration, but uh, kind of text around uh, how they are slaughtered. And uh, it certainly does not sound at all pleasant or humane um, to my uh, eyes. Anyway, um, so yeah, animalsbehindcloseddoors.com if you want to, to find out more about that particular uh, campaign around banning fur farming or indeed um, bringing uh, factory farming of uh, other things like animals like pigs and poultry out into the open as that campaign says. Anyway, we'll take another ad break now and we'll be back in a couple of minutes time with Jenny Fahey, the CEO of a charity called Life Connections in just a few minutes time after these. We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. 
Indeed you are, and thanks for listening again. It's always great to, to have you with us, and thanks for sending in the text also. The text number, of course, 086-353-7782. Now, um, joined on the line by Jenny Fahey, who's the Chief Executive Officer of an organisation she founded herself called Life Connections. So good afternoon, Jenny. Hi, Morris. Good afternoon. Thanks for having Lovely. me on. You're very welcome. You're uh, coming to us uh, live and in the flesh all the way from Clock Jordan, County Tipperary. I am. I am. Yeah, absolutely. So hello to you all in Kilkenny. Yeah, before you go on to Life Connections, Jenny, are you living in the eco-village over there? Yes, I am. Yeah, I built a house here nine years ago. Um, and yeah, it's a very comfortable home. They're lovely, yeah, lovely, warm, eco-home. Yeah, you that, that that whole village. I was an awful long time in the gestation. I remember hearing about it long before I even moved out of Dublin, and that was two thousand and five. Yeah, and it's still it's still not finished in the past no, as well. So it's, it sounds like a, it looks like a lovely place, and there's lots of um, great things going on out there. Um, but onto onto yourself and, and life connections, um, Jenny. I believe, like just looking at the, the internet as usual, great source of material, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, you you have a career history that spans social care, community development, education, and training, um, and obviously working in different organisations with different roles uh, throughout all that career history. So, how did the decision for you come about then to kind of go it alone and set up uh, the organisation Life Connections? Yeah, that's a it's a good question and. I suppose, uh, to explain to you, I was working for a domestic abuse service here in North Tipperary and I was delivering uh, preventative work to prevent domestic abuse in relationships, but I was also doing a lot of frontline work, doing a lot of work in courts, and I'm seeing the kind of the worst case scenario when relationships, um, you know, become abusive and toxic. And I was finding when I was doing the preventative work that the young people I was encountering and the staff, they were really benefiting from it and they really wanted more. And I got involved then with a program with Social Entrepreneurs Ireland, based in Dublin, and they help you develop early stage social impact ideas. So I joined a program of theirs and I kind of tested out the idea to see if I felt there was a demand there to do this full time. And yeah, that's how we kind of emerged then. We founded the company in late 2018. And I suppose the the motivation from within the domestic violence service that I was learning was that most young people meet their long-term partners between the ages of 16 and 24. And, you know, if that's, you know, a true statistic and if they've never really had what I like to call relationship education, then how do they even know if they're in an unhealthy relationship or what is an unhealthy relationship? Mm. Mm. And so, so life connections. If I understand what you, what your your kind of objectives or your kind of core purposes is really, um, starting with you know way before that age group that you just mentioned there, and starting with um, young children, even around like um, preteen children, and helping yeah. and helping themselves and their parents really to get into good patterns of communication and conversation with one another. Yeah, absolutely, Morris. Um, like I've developed an e-learning program at the moment for parents and guardians of 10, 11, 12 year olds. So I suppose traditionally that's fourth, fifth, sixth class. And the children themselves are learning about relationships and sexuality education in school. It's been part of the curriculum for, you know, 20 years. It's like there's a great program going on in schools. But I was just thinking who's supporting the parents at home to continue the conversations there. And I really believe like fundamentally by talking to the children at an earlier stage than the adolescent stage that when, you know, before 
they have become sexually active or before they've hit puberty and hormones have kicked in and their bodies are changing, if you mm. speak to them earlier on, they're likely to be more comfortable talking to you when they're older because you've brought up the conversation rather than waiting for, you know, a crisis or, you know, something like that to arise. Yeah, and I noticed also from your, your website, a very uh, a teaser that you, you mentioned um, 10 top tips for starting conversations, <laughs> for parents to start conversations in that, that area with with their, their children um, without kind of giving away your business um, for free. Is there any of those that you can kind of very quickly kind of tell us about just to give us this kind of an example of what it is you'd, you'd, um, you'd, you'd suggest? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose number one is kind of what I just said there is don't wait until they're 13, 14, and 15. Because relationships and sexuality education conversations are much more about, um, you know, talking about the body, talking about feelings, talking about, um, you know, emotional intelligence, encouraging your children to think about body awareness and critical reflection. It's much more than just talking to them about sex. And I think people think, oh God, we're going to talk about sex. I'm sure they're not going to be sexually active until they're older. But it's, there's so much more involved in the conversation because, you know, the sexual part of relationships is only a small part. So mm. my thing is talk earlier. And a big piece is, you know, think about yourselves in your own family home as the adults. How do you role model relationships? Because at the end of the day, the key influencer for children in terms of relationships as they move forward into adulthood is the family relationship. And, you know, they learn, they start by learning within the family and then they learn from their friends and their peer group yeah and, I'm you know, sure, we, yeah. yeah, and I'd say that not. to families to, to feel like it's not all out of their hands like they actually have a huge influence in their child's development Mm. I think most parents would uh, would realise that very 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 quickly, and did did all most parents would also recognise that there's a very few of us, uh, myself included, who ever really got any any training of any sort around the whole idea of being a parent, yeah, and becoming a parent, and uh, you know we get trained for all sorts of other things in life, but one of the most fundamental things that we do. Uh, oh, yeah. if, if we yeah. have the privilege to be parents is to be a parent and uh, we don't get maybe no training for us whatsoever and we muddle through. <laughs> I know, I agree. And I also think, you know, culturally, like I'm also a parent of a parent of a 21-year-old and I also think, you know, a lot of parents now in the 21st century, you know, we grew up in 70s, 80s, 90s Ireland and it was a different cultural approach to the body and there was a lot more blame, shame and guilt around. So, we're not really equipped and, you know, we, we have to, you know, we have our own values we were brought up with. So we're trying not to transfer them into, you know, the youth today. But, you know, so I, so I think parents and guardians need support to have mm. those conversations. Mm. Yeah. Now you've 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 taken it uh, on. Um, we'll we'll come on a little bit later to maybe what things that you're kind of currently doing through the Life Connections at the, at the moment, uh, Jenny. Uh, but I, I believe you've also written a book called uh, Thriving Together: Nurture Your Ten to Twelve Year Old toward, Child Towards Healthy Relationships. Yeah. Now, Mars, it's when you look on the website, it's it's actually for pre-order. Sales are on the website, um, uh, but it's not completely finished. It's due for it to be published in early. 2021 but that's the 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 theme of it is that you know thriving together because when you have these conversations with your child you know you your, your your child will thrive from the deepening of the relationship with you but you will also benefit as a parent and guardian from having a closer relationship with your child mm. and, and you know yeah. being in connection with your child knowing that they 
can open up to you if they have problems or if there's problems in their peer group as they get into teenage years or problems when they go to college or into jobs, you know, that they'll have that open mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. with you. But yeah, that book is due to be released in early 2021. Great. Well, you've um, obviously uh, learned some business like uh, tech and sales and marketing techniques along the way as well, Jenny, and that you're yeah, selling selling in <laughs> advance a little bit, but fair to you. Um, absolutely, <laughs> why not? Um, I was interested, though, I suppose, with the, 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 the focus in the, the title of the book on um, kind of where it says nurture your 10 to 12 year old child um, is that in your view is, is that a kind of a key age range for for setting a child off on what you might describe as a healthy and a positive path in uh, in forming and sustaining relationships yeah and I, I yeah I, fund, I do I fundamentally believe that that age is crucial because they're really they haven't moved into the strength of the influence the influence of the peer group yet they're beginning they're beginning to stretch into the friendship group for influence. Now, you as a parent and the other parents who are listening, you know that when they get to 14 and 15 and 16, the influences are coming from external, they're from outside the family. Now, not not 100%, but a lot of them are. So I think that when you talk to the younger child, you get to, um, you get to share, you know, openly and clearly what your values are from your perspective, your family, what you are promoting, what you think is or a good approach and it actually can be very um, can create a sense of security for the children when they mm. know that the parents are open to these conversations and they're not overwhelmed by it yeah. and that it can really set them up so that when they move towards sixth class and that transition into secondary school that they you have their back and, and then the things that they will encounter in first and second year in, say in secondary school they'll have heard about some of these things before. So it won't be as much of a shocker or something that they think has to be put onto the carpet and not talked about because people, we don't talk about those things at home. And yeah. it's to try and break down that divide that can happen between the parent and the teenager. I suppose I'm convinced you don't have to have a big us and them with your teenagers that so that if you have open conversations when they're younger, the teenage relationship will be less conflictual. That would be my yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose we again many of the many parents listening. I'm sure you, you probably would have heard it as well yourself. They, they kind of would be moving into those um, uh, teenage years where you can be have, have your child professing undying love for you one minute and then turning around with absolute disdain or disgust or <laughs> hatred, yeah. downright hatred, about ten minutes later for something else. <laughs> so I suppose, but just be, before that, you know, with the, with that kind of 10 to 12 year old kind of age bracket as you described it being so key um like for that really to to, to you know to work to start tackling those kind of those kind of ha- having healthy um, do, do you really need as a parent then to have had a kind of a tr- built up a track record of uh, for your child uh, to have your child experience kind of positive and loving parenting and sibling relationships well before the age of of 10 and all through their early kind of childhood really yeah, I mean, they have been, they've been, you know, I always say to parents and garden, guardians, and I've, I have delivered training on behalf of the National Parents Council as well. So I've worked with a lot of parent groups in that, in that way. And I always say to parents and guardians, you know, your children have been watching and absorbing and learning all the way up. You know, they, they've, been, they've been learning from the family. So, um, you know, but to say to parents, it isn't, it's not too late. You know, if you feel, oh, I haven't talked about anything like this, uh, up to the age of nine, it's not too late. Like now, what I would say is, it is a bit tricky to start talking to a fifteen-year-old if you've never had a certain style of conversation mm-hmm. with them. 
but it's not too late with a 10 year old to change your perspective and you can say simple things to them like um, I like I always talk about the third person you know it's about somebody else I was talking to so and so's mom or dad and in that conversation uh, I realised that I've never talked to you about these kind of topics mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. and I and I believe that it's my job as a, your, your, your mom or your dad to bring up these conversations. Jenny, so, I have to cut you short there. I'm really, really sorry. Just oh, okay, before we let you go, 10 seconds. Is there anything coming up on, or can people find out on your website? Yeah, have a look at the website. What's going on? Yeah, it's lifeconnections.ie. Yeah, Life there's a webinar coming up. Okay, look, it's Thanks been lovely million. talking to you, Jenny, and uh, best wishes to anybody I know over there in Clock Jordan. It's lovely to have you on Thanks, with us. And hopefully we'll chat again sometime soon. Thanks a million, Great. Jenny. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jenny Fahey there, and thanks a million to Jenny. Thanks also to Catherine Mannion from the HSE and indeed to Jerry Boland, uh, animal rights campaigner earlier on, and especially to Declan Gibbons for running the desk for me today and my ongoing producer and uh, great stalwart and supporter here on Community Radio Kilkenny City and Nolan, of course, who helps us out in so many different ways and indeed Kevin Lee Farr, who also drives the desk for me from time to time. It's a privilege to be able to present present the shows and to join you here from the studio in Raidstown. Hopefully I'll be back with you on Friday. Um, stay well until then. Take care. We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM.